But we're in the book of Acts right now in Calvary, going through the word. We're in Acts chapter 9. Man, clearly it's a, it's a passage that's been on my heart. You know, during worship, I just kept referencing the wonderful story of Saul of Tarsus being saved from his sin. And so Acts chapter 9, we see the conversion of Saul. We read about him in Acts chapter 7, that he was the one who was consenting giving the green light and the thumbs up to Stephen's death. Stephen was the first martyr in the early church. And and the young men who did the stoning of Stephen laid their outer cloak or garment at the feet of Saul. Saul was essentially the one that was in charge of the execution and, and consented to Stephen's death. And it says there in 8.1 that Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church that was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So great persecution arose against Stephen and his, his buddies. And, uh, and we know that Saul had a major hand in that. And it reminds us of what Jesus said in John chapter 16, that the day is coming that whoever kills you Christians will think that he's offering God a service. And I think that that was really at the heart of what Saul of Tarsus, what he was doing. He wasn't trying to just be a wicked man and, you know, just, oh, my life's dream has been to be a mass murderer of Christians, you know. You have to understand that for a Jew brought up in the synagogues, brought up around the temple, brought up under the rabbis, this idea of of God becoming flesh and dwelling among him, that was a stumbling block for Saul. Even today, uh, you know, our Israel tour guide, I've been over there uh, five times, I think. Um, Elon is our tour guide, and he's such a dear friend, uh, and he's Jewish, he's a non-practicing Jew. And we've had so many opportunities to have sweet, intimate conversations about the gospel with Elon and Elon just says, just, just for me, I just can't get to the, the spot that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. That's, I just can't get there. And so we've been praying for years that the Lord would get him there. Because even Jacob Neusner, who is the leading, he's actually passed away. He was the leading Hebrew scholar at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He even says, and he's not even a Christian, he says, you read the Old Testament and you come to know that at some point in human history, God is going to come and dwell on earth. And, and they even know that, you know. But Saul, he was at this point of stumbling and in his zeal for uh, Judaism, he just, he thought that anyone who believed that Jesus was the son of God had to be silenced and had to be stopped. And so, you know, today we're going to see the conversion, the baptism, the filling of the spirit uh, of Saul of Tarsus. And the world has no explanation for Saul's conversion to go instantly from a persecutor who's on a mission and on his way to end the life of Christians and to stop Christianity. Someone who was a legalistic follower of the law. To then become the world's greatest preacher of grace, who once was a man who was vicious against Christ, to become vocal and vibrant 
for Christ. The world just has no explanation for his conversion, but Paul gives us a little bit of insight into his conversion in 1 Timothy 1.12. He says, I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who's enabled me because he counted me faithful. He put me into the ministry. Although I formerly was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant uh, with faith and love, which are in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. He says, however, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. And so he says, I'm the chief of sinners. Here's the story. It's a faithful saying. You can take it to the bank. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. And then he says, and here's why the Lord saved me as one of the first Christians so that I would be like a a template and a pattern for anyone who would come after me so that they could say, if God can save Saul of Tarsus, he can save anybody. Do Do you have anybody in your life that you're like, oh man, this person is beyond the reach of the good news of Jesus. They're too far gone. No, no, nay, nay. You know, Paul says, no, if if God can save me, he can save anybody. And just in some of our outreach opportunities here in Crook County, we've been out uh, ministering to some of the outlying regions and we've met people. I went into the uh, Polina store one day after Cowboy and out at the Blue Mountain Ranch. And I walked in and there was a, a lady behind the counter and I said, uh, hey, uh, do you work here? And she goes, no. I do the post office here. And then she does this. Welcome to the post office, you know. And I go, oh, hey, we're just starting um, to, to run the church down the street. You can't miss it. You go to Paulina City Road and that's Paulina City. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, we'd love to have you come join us at the church. And if you know her, you know that she has a heart, has had a hard life. And she just says, if I walked into that building, it would collapse on me. And we hear that often, actually. In fact, the guy across the street from the store uh, who lives in the, we call it the Wolf's Lair, um, a stilted house. He says the same thing. If I went in there, that building would fall down on me. And we just are always like, you don't know who you're talking to here. That roof would have already collapsed a long time ago. And it's been such a neat thing because the gal there at the post office uh, had begun coming to the church. She lives across the street from the church and just, I guess, couldn't resist our smiling, welcoming faces. You know, and, uh, and she's so funny because she'd come in and she'd sit there and I'd be preaching and sometimes she'd be like, you know, and after I'd preach, I'd go and I'd hug her. And, and as I'm approaching for a good holy side hug, she goes, don't touch me. Well, okay, you can hug you know, and then, uh, and then as time went on, we, it became our joke. Don't touch me, you know, and then we'd hug each other. And uh, I just saw her at the post office. She said, I just got a new shirt for you. It says, don't touch me. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and so, but it's been wonderful. If you know her, 
she's begun uh, coming to church on Sundays and she says, we're going through the church series in Polina and I just realized Sunday in Polina is not enough. I need more. And she's come to the women's tea and the women's retreat and her countenance is just glowing. And this is the woman that said, if I went into that building, it'd collapse on me. And maybe you felt that way. Maybe just your sin, you're like, I'm glad we're outside today, <laughs> you know. Uh, but you know, the Lord is the one who saves to the uttermost and he saves to the guttermost. And Saul of Tarsus is the example of that. And Luke is anxious here as he writes the book of Acts to show that this uh, story of Saul be remembered. Uh, Paul is going to tell his own story two more times in the book of Acts. So three times total in Acts is the story of Paul recounted and recounted so that it would be that template for us of our God who's rich to save. Uh, John Stott said, Luke is evidently anxious, as the book of common prayer puts it, that we should have his wonderful conversion in remembrance. Baron George Littleton uh, wrote a, a letter to Gilbert West, and he wrote that the conversion of Saul is a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be divine revelation. Since Saul was neither an imposter who said what he knew to be false with an intent to deceive, nor was he an enthusiast who by the force of an overheated imagination imposed on himself, nor deceived by the fraud of others, Therefore, what he declared to have been the cause of his conversion and to have happened in the consequence of it did all happen. And therefore, the Christian religion is a divine revelation. And so how wonderful that as we are out defending the faith and speaking of the truth of the gospel, we can use the story of Paul as a proof, as an evidence of the divine revelation of the gospel. Uh, it was the historian and professor Howard Marshall that said, the story shows a number of features in common with Jewish legends. One would be Heliodorus, who attempted to take money from the temple treasury and then was thwarted by the vision of a heavenly rider, which made him fall to the ground. That story is in two Maccabees. And so let's hear of this great story that I keep building up and never getting to. Let's get to it, huh? Verse 1. Some of you are chill. You're like, let's not draw this on longer than it need, right? <clears throat> then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So in Acts chapter 8, we saw that he was consenting to the death. And there was this, uh, this great persecution that arose through Paul. Now he's still breathing threats. This phrase uh, speaks of a wild and ferocious beast. Just think of that. <laughs> the language speaks of being animated and bent upon threatening and murdering Christians. These threats, the language speaks of that he was a menace. You know, this morning as I was reading this, I was thinking of Dennis the Menace. Mr. Wilson, 
you know, and then just stretching that slingshot, you know. Uh, anyways, you know, and, and that's uh, Saul right now. He's just a menace to Jesus. He's a menace to the church with his threats, breathing the threats. And a couple of weeks ago, I made reference to Le Miserable, Le, Le Miserable. Less Miserables. Sorry, I don't speak French. You know, and what a great story Less Miserables is. You know, if you haven't seen the movie, you got to watch it and think about the gospel. But uh, it was Matt McCaw that was like, I was too scared to shout out the name of the marshal in the movie, but I had to look it up today, Matt. Uh, Javert. All right. Javert was the policeman who was hell bent on capturing parole violator. Uh, Jean Valjean, if you've ever seen the movie, if you know the story, right? And Javert, this is, it just reminds us of Javert here, where Saul is like a wild and ferocious beast. This word, breathing threats, it's a verb. Uh, the only New Testament occurrence is here, speaking of Saul's destroying the church. In the Old Testament, it's used in Psalm 80, verse 13, to speak of wild boars devastating a vineyard and it especially refers to quote the ravaging of a body by a wild beast so think of that think of a wild boar or a bear or just a, a lion just devouring and just bent on destroying its victim a little later, Damascus Christians in our chapter will depict Saul as having, quote, caused havoc in Jerusalem. And the word there, portheo, for havoc, um, is also translated mauled. So he's mauled the church in Jerusalem. Just don't let this get old to you. Just think about how bad to the bone Saul of Tarsus was. Continuing with the same picture, J.A. Alexander suggests that Saul's breathing out murderous threats was an allusion to the panting or the snorting of wild beasts. But John Calvin will point to God's grace being seen when Calvin says, quote, not only in such a cruel wolf being turned into a sheep, but also in his assuming the character of a shepherd. So that's how bad on one end of the pendulum was Saul of Tarsus. How great was the grace of God that took the wolf, not only turned it to a gentle sheep, but turned him into a, a wonderful shepherd. And so Saul has this animosity towards the church at this um, moment. And... Uh, still has this same hatred and method towards the church. It says that he went to the high priest and asked for letters, verse 2, from the high priest to the synagogue of Damascus. So Saul was not just satisfied with kind of quenching the Christian church in Jerusalem and in his campaign there, but he was anxious to do more. And he kind of became the self-appointed inquisitor leaving Jerusalem armed with written authority to go up to Damascus to, uh, it says there in verse two, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so in a modern picture, the high priest gives a extradition order and permission to go 
uh, and to arrest any Christians up in the Decapolis, up in the area of Damascus. As John Stott says, in Paul's own language later, a raging fury obsessed him. And he says this, if we met Saul as he left Jerusalem and had told him that before he reached Damascus, he would have become a believer and he would have been baptized by the end of the day, he would have ridiculed the idea. Yet this was the case. Saul and all of his Rage had left out of his calculations the sovereign grace of God. And so he takes to the road of Damascus. It's 140 miles away. It's a one-week ride on horseback. They're going to be approaching Damascus here, which is a beautiful oasis surrounded by desert. It's about noontime. And verse 3 tells us, as he journeyed and came to Damascus, suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. He was halted in his tracks. Bright light in Acts 26, Paul says, the light was brighter than the sun. He was not in the light of the sun, but he will see was in the light of the son of God. It's in Acts 26, 13. It was brighter than the sun. Jesus identifies himself uh, in just a minute. That he's going to be seeing the son of God. And in verse 4, Saul falls to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so uh, Saul riding horseback falls that good, you know, four or five feet to the ground, probably doesn't feel real great, but he's distracted by the light around him. The language one man wrote of this falling to the ground is to fall prostrate at the feet of one's conqueror. And here the Lord brings Saul of Tarsus to his knees. Saul was just going about his business, but the Lord interrupted his journey. Charles Spurgeon said, Paul was a great man. And I have no doubt that on the way to Damascus, he rode a very high horse. But a few seconds suffice to alter the man. How soon God brought him down. So Saul of Tarsus, Pharisee of Pharisees, going in conquest with flowing religious robe, is knocked off his horse. One man said, the men that are hardest fall the hardest. <laughs> the bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? And here you have a hard heart. Jesus himself said that it's better for you to fall on the rock and be broken than for the rock to have to fall on you. And what does it say? Do you remember? And grind you to powder. Oh, it's so much better to just hear the voice of the Lord today and say, you know what? Those words that Rory are speaking about salvation in Jesus, I need that. And I'm just going to humble myself right now before the Lord and receive his gift of salvation. Or you can stiffen your neck against God and harden your heart against God and resist God and become hard. And then when he does come, he's going to fall upon you. And grind you to powder. 
The Lord knows how to humble the proud. And he singled Saul out of the crowd. And he says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? In all of his persecuting of God's people, Saul was persecuting Jesus. This wasn't business as usual. It was personal. Marshall says while he thought he was merely attacking a group of men for their heretical way of worshiping God, he was in reality attacking a group who had a heavenly spokesman and a representative to attack the Christians was to attack the heavenly figure. Now, I don't know how many of you have wives, but if someone were to attack your wife, oh, it's personal. It's on like Donkey Kong right now. (laughs) To touch the bride of Christ is to touch Christ. In Zechariah 2.8, whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. If anyone messes with you, it's as if they're poking me in the eye. And you know what? You don't want to poke God in the eye. That's not a good thing. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, I'm telling you, As much as you did to these little ones, you did it to me. And so Saul responds to Jesus and he says, who are you, Lord? I mean, you can almost picture him kind of nursing a wounded, bruised tailbone, if not broken, you know, leaning on his side a bit, bright light, you know, uh, seeing the Lord Jesus and saying, who, who are you? He says, Lord, although at this point, some writers have said it doesn't necessarily, it's more of a sir. Who are you, sir? And the Lord says, uh, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Perhaps you're here today and you might be thinking about your spiritual status and the condition of your soul. And maybe you would say, you know what? I haven't had a sudden conversion like Saul of Tarsus. I can't get baptized today. I haven't had a sudden conversion like the Saul of Tarsus here. And the question must be asked, was it that sudden? I mean, here Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? And what he's speaking is a, it's a pastoral Phrase. It's a shepherding phrase. It's a ranching phrase. If you work cattle around here and you're put in the back of the process and you're supposed to move those cattle up through the alleyway and up through the chutes, oftentimes you're armed with some sort of rattle or, or a stick or a flag and you move these animals and you're trying to get them going. And sometimes you have a stubborn animal and you might be given a poking prod. This is our first year doing 4-H with our kids and we have a couple of steers And uh, we just bought our new show sticks for fair. I mean, these things, you could play pool with them, you know, and they're all shiny. We're still using the McKinnon show sticks so that those ones get all beat up and dirty. But we've got our new ones, right? We're waiting for fair to bust them out. And, uh, you know, and if you've seen the show sticks, they've got a big uh, pokey uh, point at the end with a little hook. And you can you can just touch those steers and move their feet. And they'll, they'll adjust their stance. But so often as we're moving cattle, and oftentimes it's in the slop, it's in the muck, it's in the mud. And we're pushing cattle through a tub and trying to 
get them through for their medicines. And these cows, you know, they'll be stubborn and you'll just kind of tap them or, or poke them and just kind of even sometimes so gently and they'll kick at you. And, and you got to kind of know right the right angle because they, they're laser focused with those shots, you know. And there's times where you'll get close to them and you're like, if I breathe right now, I can tell, I can, she's got the look in her eye. She's going to just peg me, you know, and, and she pegs you. It happens. But, uh, but those cattle, you know, they don't, don't poke me. Don't jab me. I don't want to go. I don't want to go forward. And they just, they feel the prod and they're kicking at it. And that's what Saul was doing. And what do you think were the things in Saul's life that were the poking prods of the Holy Spirit? I bet you there wasn't a day that went by that Saul didn't think of Stephen dying for Jesus. I bet you there wasn't a day in his life he didn't think about Stephen seeing a bright light, looking up to heaven and saying, look, I see Jesus. He's at the right hand of the Father. The heavens are opened up. There he is in glory. And Saul's standing there like, you arrogant. You know what? I wonder what he did see up there. I mean, he really seemed like he saw something up there. I don't think he was putting, no, no, no. You know, Saul and Jesus were contemporaries. They were about the same age. And if they didn't know each other on a personal basis, they probably had been around the temple at the same time. Saul probably heard Jesus speak. Uh, if not, at the very least, he'd heard about the fame of Jesus. Um, some have even speculated that the rich young ruler that came in contact with Jesus, who was so proud about his keeping of the law, that that may have been a young Saul of Tarsus. There, there had probably maybe been some interaction, um, you know, and and so perhaps that ministry of Jesus had been prodding at his life uh, for those years, and and so it, for some time now, this shows us that this wasn't just a sudden conversion like that the Lord had been working on his heart and I would venture to say just as he's worked on your heart and that he's been doing something in your life over the years to be poking you prodding you showing you your need for a savior showing you that things aren't all right in your home in your marriage in your morality things aren't all right and you have a conviction and in Romans chapter 1 tells us you even look at creation and you know there was a designer of this and one day you're going to give an account to your life and that terrifies you things aren't all right and today might be your Saul of Tarsus moment where the Lord just says stop stop kicking would you Stop kicking and would you just listen? Why are you kicking? Did you know that if you win in kicking, that you lose? And there are, as I go out to some of these ranches and I help guys, there are cattle that are like, you know what? She's kicked enough. I'm going to give her what she wants. That's not a good thing. The Lord in his grace has brought you here today to hear of his mercy. Paul would later write that it pleased God to reveal his son in me. That God in his own initiative took pleasure in pursuing Paul. 
Christ took hold of me, Paul would say. Paul would later say he seized me. And the suggestion in the Greek is that Christ arrested Saul before he had the chance to arrest any Christians in Damascus. C.S. Lewis, when he writes in Surprised by Joy, he writes, um, there's one chapter, I think it's Checkmate. And it's just this pivotal chapter in his testimony where he is a hard-boiled atheist. The hardest-boiled atheist that could ever be would become a Christian, become soft. It's an incredible story. But Lewis um, writes that he had been sensing God's relentless pursuit of him. And he likened God to the great angler playing his fish or to a cat chasing a mouse or to a pack of hounds closing in on a fox. Or finally, Lewis likens God to the divine chess player maneuvering Paul or C.S. Lewis into the most disadvantageous positions to the end until he finally concedes and says, checkmate. And so I just wonder if that's you here today. And just the Lord has been maneuvering you. One of these ranches that I go out to just bought this thing called a Vents. And it's like a big necklace that the cows wear. I don't know if you've ever seen Flava Flav, you know, with the giant house clock necklace that he wears, you know. But so we had the pleasure of installing these on the cattle, almost dying doing it, it seemed. And, uh, and they wear these big chain necklaces around the forest. And uh, the Teskies have these fences. And from their computer, they can make virtual fences and boundaries in the forest. And so when we know we're going to be moving them and pushing them to certain places, you can the day beforehand or the week before just start nudging them and with these virtual fences and kind of getting them in area. And I wonder if the Lord has been doing that to you, like that master angler. Just going to drop this lure right in front of you right here, you know, or like that cat that's just like playing with the mouse, like. I got you where I want you, here at the amphitheater today. And I'm telling you, I have divinely orchestrated that here and now is the day I've prepared for you to be saved. Isn't that exciting? You know, he did that for you. If you're a Christian here today, you can rejoice that, Lord, you were doing that to bring me near and draw me near. In verse 6 of our text, uh, Oh man, I just, I just saw a quote that I missed. I can't. A guy named Jung wrote, The very fanaticism of Saul's persecution betrayed his growing inner uneasiness because fanaticism is only found in individuals who are compensating for secret doubts. <laughs> it was like he was like, No! I gotta imprison the Christians! And inside his heart he's like, you're about to become one, aren't you? No! You know? And so his fanaticism was betraying, like, that the goad was poking deep. All right. Sorry. Thank you for letting me segue. <laughs> okay. Back to verse six. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So Saul is trembling. 
And he's astonished. Years ago, I put on a youth camp. I used to put on camps for the state of Oregon, and we'd go to Bandon to the coast. And the theme of one of our big youth camps was just astounded. And it was teaching the, the young high schoolers about worship. And I'll never forget on our booklet, we put the definition of astounded. And it's that you would be struck dumb with some sudden fear or terror. That's Saul here, struck dumb with some sudden uh, fear and terror. And he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Here's the beginning of Saul yielding the reins of his life over to the Lord. From here on out, Saul will consider himself a bondservant of Christ. Saul was going to Damascus to arrest Jesus, but here Jesus arrests Saul. And the man, verse 7, who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And so there's a little difference in the accounts between how Paul puts it, how Luke puts it. One man said that uh, it could be understood that the men saw Saul just go off into another world and they heard Saul's voice talking to somebody, but they didn't see anyone around, you know? So like, who is he talking to, you know? Uh, someone understand it and they heard the voice of the Lord, but didn't see the Lord there. Um, but And they're witnessing that something extraordinary is happening here to Saul. Verse eight, then Saul arose from the ground and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight. He neither ate nor drank. So here he's blind. He'll be blind for three days. He's led into the town of Damascus. And he'll be fasting. He'll spend some time soul searching. A time of, of really impact in his life where he's considering the things that he's seen. And he's considering the things which he's done. Stott says, he who had expected to enter Damascus in the fullness of his pride and prowess as a self-confident opponent of Christ was actually led into it humbled and blinded, a captive of the very Christ he'd opposed. There could be no misunderstanding what had happened. The risen Lord had appeared to Saul it was not a subjective vision or a dream. It was an objective appearance of the resurrection of the now glorified uh, Jesus. C.S. Lewis, again, whose sense of God's pursuit of him had already been mentioned, uh, spoke of the freedom that came in responding to God. He said, I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out, or if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing like corsets or even a suit of armor as if I were a lobster. I felt I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either, though I knew that to open the door or to take off the corset meant the uncalculable. The choice appeared to be momentous, but it was also strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desires or fears. In a sense, uh, I was not moved by anything. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. 
On the other hand, I was aware of no motives. You could argue that I was not a free agent, but I am more inclined to think this came nearer to being a perfectly free act than most that I've ever done. Necessity may not have been the opposite of freedom, and perhaps uh, a man is most free when, instead of producing motives, he could only say, I am what I do. And that was the day that C.S. Lewis took off the lobster shell, took off the suit of armor, so stiff, and he became free in Christ Jesus. I hope that today you would take off that armor, that shell, and let Jesus bring freedom into your life. In verse 10, now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And so when you're reading the book of Acts, you might notice the multiple times that God works on both sides of equations, both sides of the story. This has been so true in my life. If we're making a big decision, if we have to make a big move, if there's just something that we need the Lord to show us, we always pray, Lord, over there, before I moved to Primeville, I prayed wherever God called me to be a pastor, that over there they would be praying for me as well. Uh, before we, this last year, if you walked through our Nepal trip, our doors in Nepal had shut, but we prayed that someone over there would be praying for someone over, you know, just, I love how the Lord works. He does it with Cornelius in chapter 10. He does it with the Lydia and the disciples in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. This is how the Lord Works. He works through the double dream, and he's, he's doing the double dream here as Ananias also um, just hears the Lord. And notice how casual Ananias is. He's like, here I am, Lord. Like, it's just a normal thing for God to speak to him. Verse 11, so the Lord says to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he's praying. What is this new Christian Saul doing? He's praying. Charles Spurgeon said that prayer is the autograph of the Holy Spirit's work on a new heart. He's praying. It's the mark of a Christian. They talk to God. The very same mouth that a day before had been breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples is now breathing out praises and prayers to God. The raging lion, John Stott says, has been changed into the bleeding lamb. Praying to the Lord. Verse 12, and in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And then Ananias answers, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to blind or to bind all who call on your name. Lord, haven't you been following the news? Haven't you been watching Fox News, Lord? Haven't you heard about this guy? He's hauling Christians off to prison. I'm going to go put my hand on him and, and pray for him. No wonder William Barclay calls Ananias one of the forgotten heroes of the Christian church. Because the Lord's going to use him to go and reach this new convert. I mean, this guy was the... You know, I was looking at my notes and clearly it was, it was written back in the day because, uh, you know, this is the Osama bin Laden. 
of the day or the Saddam Hussein of the day. And I was going to do a quick Google search like, who are the most wanted people now? You know, I don't know. Uh, the Adolf Hitler of his day. That was Saul. It's persecuting the church, looking to genocide the Christians. And again, just be reminded that Saul considered himself the chief of sinners. And that if the Lord could save Saul of Tarsus, he could save anybody. And it reminded me years ago, a lady in our church gave me a book, a rumpled up uh, paperback. And she said, I thought you'd like this, Rory. And it was called The Cross and the Swastika. The Cross and the Swastika uh, tells the story of the aftermath of the war in Europe during World War II. Hitler had killed himself and many of the Nazi leadership in the Third Reich were captured and put in prison. And they were being put on trial for three things. They had four indictments against them. Number one, being party to a conspiracy to wage aggressive war. Number two, these guys were indicted for crimes against peace. Thirdly, war crimes, wanton destruction and mistreatment of POWs. Fourth, crimes against humanity, inhumane treatments of civilians, exterminations and persecutions on racial and religious grounds, from which we know six million Jews and hundreds of thousands of gypsies were killed. Seventeen of Adolf Hitler's right-hand henchmen faced trial and most likely execution for their crimes. Their future seemed dim. Enter in a man named Henry Gorek, who was a United States Army chaplain and a bearer of the good news of the gospel. Gorek was assigned to bring spiritual hope and guidance to these men, who over the course of the year, he was able to very... Uh, clearly present the good news of the gospel to this hopeless string of inmates. Henry Gurek writes, these men must be told about the savior bleeding and suffering and dying on the cross for them. Greg wrote that in his journal. One of the men that would be put on trial was Fritz Sockel. He was the production and general for the allocation of labor. He was dubbed, quote, the most harsh slave driver since the Egyptian pharaohs. And the book records that he knelt down by his bed, imploring Gorek to read the scriptures to him and pray with him. It's written, he was unafraid and unashamed. He prayed with me at his bedside, generously ending our prayer by saying, God be merciful to me a sinner. The book tells of Field Marshal Keitel, who was the chief of high command of armed forces, and how Keitel memorized numerous verses of scripture which spoke of God's mercy to save sinners. The book writes, he made a fine choice of Bible readings, hymns, and prayers, and read them himself aloud. He was unashamed to kneel at his bed and together with me make confession of his sins. On his knees and under deep emotional stress, he received the body and blood of our Savior in the bread and the wine. With tears in his voice, he said, you've helped me more than you know. May Christ my Savior stand by me all the way. I shall need him so much. 
Albert Speer was the right minister for armaments and war, which was the slave labor to produce arms. Baldur von Schirach was Hitler's youth leader and the uh, Gualatier or the overbearing leader of Vienna, and a third guy with them, Hans Frick, who was the head of the broadcasting division and propaganda ministry. Greg writes of these three guys, it touched my heart to see the three big men on their knees about to receive the Lord's Supper. I felt sure other prayers with me because it was not possible to win them to the foot of the cross without the intercession of God's people. I'm convinced God worked a change in their hearts through the word that had been read. Convinced that uh, as the word was preached to them that they were ready as every penitent is to ask God forgiveness for sins for Jesus' sake. Gurek asked the three men, I now ask you before God, is this your sincere confession that you heartily repent of your sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and sincerely and earnestly purpose by the assistance of God and the Holy Ghost, henceforth to amend your sinful life, then declare so by saying yes. And with delight in his heart, the chaplain gave bread and wine to Frisch von Sirach, and spear. Another man, Konstantin von Neroth, was the foreign minister in 1932 and occupied Czechoslovakia. He read Ephesians 2, verse 8, and saw that being born again was altogether a work of the Holy Spirit, involving a personal repentance of the sins that separated him from God, that Christ paid the penalty for sin, and it was up to him to ask for forgiveness. And by grace and by faith received Jesus into his life. Gurek recalls, as we went along, Von Neroth manifested genuine interest. And this led to a crisis experience when the old baron admitted his need for salvation. One last person here that I thought you'd find interesting. Foreign Minister Joaquin Von Ribbentrop. I mean, just the name itself, right? Von Ribbentrop. He would essentially be first in command after Hitler. Um, Hermann Goring ended up rejecting the gospel and taking a cyanide capsule and killing himself. He would have been Hitler's second in command. He died committing suicide on his execution date. Here's the next guy, Joachim von Ribbentrop. For nearly a year, von Ribbentrop had heard the chaplain proclaim Christ as the answer talking of the cross and the power of the blood of Jesus, explaining that faith is simply the channel through which God's grace is received. Ribbentrop could hold out no longer, seeking God's forgiveness and opening his heart to Christ. Uh, Gurek writes, one of my most heartening experiences was observing the slow and steady uh, progress of von Ribbentrop, the diplomat, from cool indifference to a truly sincere Christian faith. Now, this upset Frau Ribbentrop, that's Mrs. Ribbentrop, and she certainly made it as difficult for me, the chaplain, as she could through her letters. She wrote that she would offset my influence on her husband in every way that she could. And after the guilty verdict was given and the men were given a final chance to see their families, Gurek heard von Ribbentrop plead with his wife, that their children be kept in the church and be brought up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. 
this statement was especially interesting because at the beginning of Gurek's work, uh, he wrote, the whole family had withdrawn from the church. He says, perhaps uncharitably, I labeled Frau Ribbentrop the most ungodly woman I'd ever met. I heard her husband plead with her, have the children baptized, sweetheart. Finally, she gave in. And I helped her arrange for the baptism of her two boys in the neighboring church. When the execution day came, Greg said his final prayer with Von Ribbentrop. I heard him say that he would put all his trust in the blood of the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. While yet in his cell, he asked God to have mercy on his soul. As he stood at the gallows to be hung, Ribbentrop's final statement ended with, God have mercy on my soul. Then he turned to Chaplain Gorek and said, and my heart still warms when I think of it, I'll see you again. And so Paul says, if God can save Saul of Tarsus, he can save anybody. This is the pattern of salvation, which is to follow. And in this great book, The Cross and the Swastika, we see a number of just what we would call the off-scouring of the world. The disgusting, the burning hell is what many would say. And yet the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus says something different. Let's wrap up here. For I will show him, Jesus is talking to Ananias and says, Hey, I'm going to show Saul how many things he must suffer for my namesake. And then Ananias went on his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came, he sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Ananias is obedient to the heavenly vision. Remember the vision was that Saul has seen someone coming and laying hands on him. And what does Ananias go and do? He goes with that great fraternal community, lays his hands to say, I'm with you. And then has that fraternal phrase, you're my brother. I recognize that. Brother Saul. Verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. Interesting thing, I can't think of anywhere else where you see something like this in the Bible where something like scales fell off. Like his blindness and his hardness of heart, now the Lord's removing that and he's able to really see clearly. Remember what street he's on in Damascus? A street called Straight. Are you into puns? The moment he received his sight, he could see Okay, never mind. Okay. Let's keep moving. In fact, worship team, you can come on up. But you see, he was a, he was he arose and was baptized. Last week in chapter 8, we saw the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. After the, the eunuch had heard the gospel, he said, Here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And a scribal note. Make something just clear that, hey, here's how you're baptized. If you believe with all your heart, you can be baptized. To which we would respond, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Son of God. That he loves me, that he gave himself for me. And so they went into the water. 
Here we have Saul of Tarsus, the one that would you think the church would fall in on his head if he went into the church. Yet he's there, he's being baptized. And today we've made available baptism as well. A sacrament that's made available to the Christian to show outwardly what's happened inwardly. Romans chapter 6, Galatians chapter 1 speaks of the believers uniting with Jesus in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection. And then if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, that that moment you believe, there was a moment where the old, I'll use myself as an example, the old Rory is dead. With all of his sinful tendencies, with all of his covetousness, with all of his idolatry, with all of his lusts, with all of his lyings, with all of his stealings, the old Rory is dead by faith, buried with Christ Jesus. But Romans says the good news is that just as Jesus rose from the dead, so too do Christians rise with newness of life and resurrection power upon them. That the same spirit who rose Jesus from the dead is now in you and upon you. And if you're a Christian today and you've never been baptized, I would just ask you, here is water. What hinders you from being baptized? Many people, I know it well. Oh, I've really been holding out for that day that grandma gets out of the nursing home and travels 500 miles to be there when I get baptized. That might not happen, <laughs> right? You've been waiting too long for that dream. Or, oh man, every time I'm baptized, I just, I did a really good job on my hair that day and I, I can't go get baptized. My hair, I'm having a good hair day. That's rare. I don't want to get all wet in front of people. I just, and I would just say, there's just no excuse. If you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, what hinders it? And especially come in the last two weeks to know what baptism is. It's that external sign to the world that you believe in Jesus, that your old man and old woman are dead, and that you've been born again to live a new life with Jesus. Listen to one preacher this week. He says, if you're a part of the army of God, you're a Christian, and you haven't been baptized do you think that whatever your excuse is, is really going to hold up before the Lord? Why have you been disobedient? Oh, I just, this or that. It's like, no. You know, to the early church, it would be unheard of for someone to be a Christian and to never get baptized. While we don't need to be baptized to get saved, it's necessary to be baptized to be a New Testament Christian. And to live the life that the Lord has for you. And so I want to encourage you as we go to a final song. If you hear the Lord prompting you that today is the day. Here is water. Go make that public declaration. I want to encourage you. Your life will change. I think that this is one of those elementary principles. That if you're obedient in it on the small level. That the Lord is just going to open up opportunity in your life. To be used by him in a radical ways 
So during this next song, if you sense the Lord tugging at your heart, be prepared to come and to join me at the waters of baptism. Worship team, you're all up here. Let me grab my guitar. And for those of you who are not Christians, and you come to this park today, not one who has surrendered your life, your will, your all to the Lord Jesus. Jesus wants to be your savior and save you from your sins. And we all love that part. Like, oh yeah, I need someone to save me from my sin. Did you know that he also is to be the Lord of your life? The master of your life? Today I want to encourage you, no matter who you are today, there's salvation for you. Jesus will be your savior. And he wants to be the master of your life if you would just surrender to him. You can surrender during this next song even. It's a song about our testimony and our story and us being like the souls of Tarsus who have been uh, radically saved and brought from darkness to light. Will you stand with me as we close? Amen, you guys. We're going to move to the baptismal. If you want to go ahead and turn yourselves that direction, and if you feel the Lord leading you to come to the water today, come to the water in that great step of obedience. Be led by the Lord to make a public statement that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price, and you are Jesus's now. Let's head that direction, and we'll have a little music playing as we do.